This week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Columbia Law School's new podcast, Defending the Planet. Listen as leading experts go beyond the headlines and political ping pong to discuss how the law can combat the climate crisis. Defending the Planet is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to law.columbia.edu slash defending the planet for more. Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hello, everyone. Uh, end of an era here. Yeah, we're going to be uh, maybe a drop-down beat today, but <laughs> I do think we have a lot of good news to go out on as Bill's final show with us on Pro Se. Well, it's kind of a bittersweet day, really. First of all, I want to disclose, today, uh, in addition to being Bill's last show, is my birthday. <laughs> I am uh, 36 years old, and... Uh, at least so far, because it's Bill's last show, this is among the worst birthdays in recent memory. <laughs> Bill, how can I have you like eight hours Alex left. like this? Yeah. Look, I timed it this way on purpose. <laughs> Clearly. Um, yeah. It's just an elaborate prank on Alex. Uh, yeah, we got, um, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a proper send off, I think. Yeah, uh, I think we'll talk about it at the end. Later I mean, in the show. You know. Um, we did feel like, um, since it is your final show with us, there was only fitting to just do an all host show today. Yeah. All host show. And I would say this is also our first in studio pro se. We recorded the movie club episodes here in the studio, but yes. it's a pleasure to be in here with you guys. Talking about legal news. We're, yeah. we're reuniting. One last time. To, yeah, we're reuniting to say goodbye. That's, I mean, great I stuff. can't just cry at my apartment alone. I have to be <laughs> with you guys for it. That would be way too bleak. Um, <laughs> we do have some good news stories to talk about, though, uh, before we uh, get to the ceremonies uh, or whatever. But, uh, Bill, you want to start us off here? Yeah, right off the jump, we're going to talk about a New Jersey state judge this week refused to preemptively stop Johnson & Johnson from engaging in this unusual sort of untested bankruptcy maneuver that's uh, derided as uh, the Texas two-step, which is just fun to say. It is. I think I learned that in uh, square dancing in gym class. <laughs> um, so critics say that uh, this maneuver would allow big companies to sidestep billions of dollars in liability somewhat unfairly. So I figured um, we should get into what this is and how it might work. What is the stance move, Bill? <laughs> um, so and, and, and why is it allowed in New Jersey? I'm confused. <laughs> the Texas two-step, I don't know. Right, well, it's like Texas toast, Alex. Yes. You can have it anywhere. That's, that's, <laughs> that's true. Uh, so in broad strokes, the Texas two-step is this novel strategy where a company sort of splits off liabilities uh, into a new separate company, which then declares bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. uh, the move takes advantage of this special Texas statute, um, version of which now exists in Delaware as well, I believe, uh, which allows for what's known as a divisive merger, which is sort of a confusing name for yeah. splitting it in half. It's sort of an anti-merger. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, so it, this started getting trotted out a few years ago. Two companies have already tried the two-step. In 2017, Georgia Pacific split off its uh, asbestos liability into a firm called Bestwall, which then declared bankruptcy. And last year, a unit of Ingersoll Rand uh, did the same thing with its asbestos liability. 
Neither bankruptcy plan has been confirmed, so this this has not been really dealt with in court yet, which is why I sort of referred to it as an untested approach. You can see you can see the incentive to do this in terms of when these huge companies start taking on legal liability and kind of moving it around to different corporate units and things like that. Um, but there, this is at issue in a specific case that we're talking about that involves Johnson and Johnson. What's that all about? Yeah, so J and J is facing a huge amount of potential liability in these lawsuits that allege that it concealed cancer risks linked to its baby powder. There was a $2.1 billion verdict uh, that the U.S. Supreme Court declined to review earlier this summer. The company is facing uh, somewhere in the range of 35,000 open claims in a federal uh, multi-district litigation, an MDL, and um, there are even more cases filed in state courts around the country. So back in July, Reuters broke the news that J&J was contemplating a Texas two-step. J&J said at the time, and they have said ever since, that this has not yet been decided on. They haven't decided on any particular course of action. They did not deny it, but they said that we have not yeah. said we're going to do anything. In late August, we saw our first testing of this in court. A company that supplied talc to J&J and has since declared bankruptcy asked the Delaware bankruptcy judge to block J&J from conducting this two-step. They are, um, you know, they're litigating with J&J about who, whether they are indemnified mm -hmm. for their role in all of this litigation. It was somewhat of a weird procedural posture because the company was asking a judge in a completely different bankruptcy. This was the bankruptcy for this supplier of talc to right. J&J um, to block J&J from filing for bankruptcy from doing in new a bankruptcies. different capacity. So yes. um, anyone who knows how the U.S. court system works knows that probably didn't work. And the judge uh, declined to do that, saying that, you know, it just wasn't ripe. It wasn't before this judge. Then this week, a New Jersey state judge who is overseeing one of these J&J &J baby powder cancer cases uh, issued a similar ruling. The judge said that, um, you know, blocking J&J &J from doing something that they have not yet done um, would be just completely speculative and hypothetical and not the kind of thing that U.S. courts are allowed to rule on. Um, it, th they said that it's just like a leap that they were not able to take. This seems like if it did work, it would really, uh, really catch on. This could be used a lot. But will it work? I mean, it's untested. Yeah. Um, so Cara Salvatore, one of our reporters here at Law360, has a great piece up on the site. I would suggest everyone go give it a read. The two-step, as I mentioned before, has not been tested in court. Those two asbestos companies that are trying it are still waiting to see whether their, plan, their, their bankruptcy plans will get confirmed. Um, and based on the two recent decisions that I just highlighted, um, we're going to have to wait and see if J&J &J actually tries this before we get a ruling, we're probably mm -hmm. not going to get a ruling on it until J&J, &J, yeah. until and if they do it. Not on a preemptive basis. Right. Yeah. Um, the key legal question, if it does get to that point, um, will be whether a two-step is a so-called fraudulent transfer. Um, a, a sort of bedrock principle of bankruptcy law is that a company cannot hinder, delay, or defraud creditors. And, um, you know, moving money before filing for bankruptcy in order to avoid paying back debts is sort of a quintessential fraudulent transfer. Does that concept apply to this? It is a much more complex question than the sort of simple way that I just laid it out. Yeah. But that's going to be the battle lines of, you know, whether or not this is something that flies. On a broader level, there's also, you know, as there is with many of these, with many legal cases, there is a PR element here and also a legislative element. Um, this would, I mean, truly be terrible optics for J&J. &J. It, it yeah. 
you can already see sort of like, you know, the, the, the billion dollar company is using loopholes to, to get out of paying cancer patients. Especially since it seems like this would be most appealing in these big, broad, splashy cases that are already being widely covered. Right. Yeah. And from a very basic sense, it, um, you know, it does seem to, I think, to a lay uh, audience, it would seem unfair to use bankruptcy in this way. You are getting the advantages of bankruptcy, mm-hmm. but you're not you know, getting all the downsides of it for your whole company or just getting it for this tiny portion of your company. People also really hate when corporate bra- bankruptcy loopholes feel like they could never be utilized by people. Yeah. Exactly. You know, in individual yeah. bankruptcy, it's not like you could, you and your spouse could just each split apart and only one person go bankrupt. Yeah. Right. And, and you know who else gets upset about that? Uh, Members of Congress. True. Um, a uh, a bill has already been introduced by Senate Democrats, um, not in the wake of this J&J situation, but in the wake of the Purdue Pharma Sackler family debacle with, yep. with their bankruptcy um, that would change the way that you can insulate yourself from liability using the bankruptcy process. So, you know. Would J&J doing this, you know, uh, feed that fire? Um, would that piece of legislation stop J&J from doing this? There's a lot of open questions here, but um, it's an interesting story, and um, I'm sure we'll be keeping an eye on it. I want to move us from something that's very open as a question to sort of putting a cap on a big suit, something that's mm-hmm. closed now. Twitter ha- was set to go to trial to defend against a securities class action. But the company struck a last-minute deal to pay almost $810 million to end the suit. So I thought we'd break down that case. Now, I I suspect that this might have something to do with Twitter being sued for hosting my tweets, which are uniformly bad. I thought I this mean, was going to have to do with Twitter just being an awful place <laughs> full of awful people. I think $810 million isn't enough for your tweets. Yeah, that, you know what? That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fine point. Um, what, what, was the, what was the case about? I assume <laughs> so it was some kind of class action. It was. This yeah. is a class action that alleges Twitter changed the way it tracked and reported um, use and engagement, sort of their metrics, in, a, in an effort to deceive shareholders and inflate its stock value. So one example from the claim was this event that Twitter held in 2014 with financial analysts where the company provided what the what the shareholders say was unrealistic growth projections. It called for its monthly active users to double to over 550 million users by 2018. Mm-hmm. And um, the shareholders say Twitter just couldn't back that up with any real data, yeah. which, you know, classic uh, fraudulent stuff if, if that was found to be true. Yeah. According to the class, Twitter then tried to conceal its user engagement metrics from investors. So it stopped reporting one of the primary metrics, which is timeline views. And that made it a lot tougher for investors to sort of track the company's growth and see if they were actually meeting the benchmarks Mm -hmm. that they were out touting that they would. Twitter instead started reporting other metrics. But the shareholders in the suit say they were essentially a sham, that they were basically these low quality ones. And I kind of wondered what that is, but they spell it out in the complaint. And they say Twitter's doing stuff like sending automated messages to anybody who was um, dormant on the site and encouraging them to log in. And then when they got a bunch of people that responded to those messages, it boosted their active user metric. Mm -hmm. So they're really juicing it, essentially, is what the complaint here is. The real trouble with all this is that when information became clear about how Twitter was managing these metrics, the price of Twitter stock plummeted. So yeah. The alleged misrepresentation sent by Twitter about how great they were going to do and all the the added engagement they were going to have 
rose the stock up to more than $50 a share in early 2015. By the end of the year, it had dropped to $26 a share. So big, drastic drop there. And these kind of things do tend to lead to lawsuits when there's a huge drop off. It's so interesting because so much of what you just described is like, you know, it tracks with what so many of these, uh, you know, Silicon Valley startups say about it. We are going to have this many people. We are getting this much engagement. All this stuff is sort of like, but it is pretty squishy. You know, the idea of what counts as people using your site and whether that could ever be monetized. It's very interesting. It, um, yeah. it does seem a little easier to make bombastic claims before you are a publicly traded company yes. and yes. you have shareholders well, <laughs> and you report to the SEC right. and you basically can't play it as fast and loose as maybe you could get away with in the early days. Yeah, and I mean and Twitter was also interesting too because Twitter, you know, in from from the in the early days was viewed as, you know, it would be there with the Facebooks and the Amazons and the like giants of the world and it is still a enormous company, but it is not on that level. So it's interesting. Um Okay, so let's get back to the settlement here. It was a last-minute settlement, always sort of an interesting development. Are there any sort of specific details that we need to know about this? Yeah, I mean, we don't know too much of the ins and outs of how they reached the settlement, but I always just like to tick off a few little interesting nuggets to, to close this one out. Twitter and the Council for the Investors announced the deal on Monday morning. That was the same day jury selection had been set to begin in California District Court, so it really was right down to the wire. Yeah. Um, we could in- insert this into a script for movie club, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> Fit right in. Um, and according to the attorneys involved, this proposed deal is actually the largest securities fraud class action recovery in the last 20 years in the Ninth Circuit. Wow. So it's a pretty okay. big one, which is why I wanted to touch down on it. Um, still has to be approved by the court. This yeah. was, you know, just proposed as the settlement. But it concludes what could be a big and costly mistake for Twitter. Can the law save the planet? This week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Columbia Law School's new podcast, Defending the Planet. Join host Michael Gerard as he and leading experts explore that question and more. Listen to the series on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to law.columbia.edu slash defendingtheplanet for more. All right, next we wanted to talk about uh, a really great story that our colleagues uh, Jeff Overly and Cara Salvatore wrote. They took a deep dive uh, last week into basically the mounting uh, headaches for the drug maker Endo Pharmaceuticals and uh, the company's lawyers at Arnold and Porter. The lawyers and the company have basically been called out for some pretty extensive misconduct in the opioid cases that are unfolding across uh, across the country. Um, and the, the attorneys representing Endo could face some pretty serious professional sanctions if this stuff um, gains a little more traction. What you basically need to know is that um, these disputes are about the company's failure to comply with discovery orders, which um, is always can sound somewhat boring, uh, perhaps quite boring even. But um, in cases like this, where, I mean, this is a huge sort of national epidemic and discovery forms the basis of the evidentiary record. It paves the way for trials to be carried out and for justice to be served, hopefully. Um, and so the allegations that that record has been sullied or tampered with um, by failure to disclose 
all the information you have are quite serious. Um, it's this huge, sprawling dispute, and I would certainly recommend that everybody should read our story on it. We'll, we'll run down some of the top line stuff here. Well, because this is huge and sprawling, I think I need a, a pretty clear reset right at the top. So what is Endo um, in court? For here. So Endo Pharmaceuticals is, uh, has been sued um, by various state and uh, municipal bodies uh, in opioid litigation, which I think everyone can basically has the, the basic shape of now, which are that you know, the company's basically accused of marketing the drug very aggressively and without sort of proper warnings and safeguards, which leads to high rates of addiction and even death. Uh, the, com- the drug that Endo made uh, is called Opana. It's an opioid. They actually stopped making it in 2017 mm-hmm. after the FDA said it was it was too prone to abuse. Um, anyway, so as these cases have played out, the company and its lawyers have been accused of willfully withholding crucial documents during the discovery process. And um, the real point at which the dam broke here was back in April uh, when there was a, a, a relatively sort of small scale case as opposed to some of these other MDLs where a Tennessee state judge became so frustrated with like years of uh, sort of tardy and incomplete discovery reports from Endo that uh, they actually that the judge actually held the company in contempt um, and entered a default judgment against it. Uh, and this was a this was a case where the plaintiffs were seeking something like you know billions of dollars. And the, the, the discovery, uh, you know, sort of shortcomings were severe enough for the judge to, to say that, okay, we're, we're not even going to trial. This is, I'm, there's just a default judgment against mm-hmm. you, and we're going right to, right to damages now. Um, and there was a, he had pretty sharp words for them. This was, this was the quote from the judge in April. Quote, accordingly, the court finds that Endo willfully withheld this information during the discovery phase to gain a litigation advantage at trial. This is about as square as it gets when it comes to, you know, you, you really kind of tried to game the system here. Uh, Now, importantly, Endo settled that case for about $35 million in Tennessee, just ahead of damages. Um, But uh, so that sort of seemed like it put a put a Band-Aid on that situation, at least from the company's perspective. Um, But that was actually not the case. Yeah. I mean, I I thought Jeff and Cara and I thought you at the up top here did did such a good job of framing how important discovery is. Yes. You know, it is w- when we cover cases, they go into discovery and we sort of forget about them for a while because yeah, it is a long yeah. drawn out process. It's a lot of reading through emails. It's a lot of data, but it is a fundamentally very important part of the American legal system. And, yeah. you know, voluntarily, you know, not voluntarily, but t- taking part in it mm-hmm. and not doing stuff like, like, uh, you know, Endo is accused of here yeah. is a very important part of the system actually working the way it's supposed to. Yes. So you said its problems were not over and and that this was sort of, you know, uh, maybe a canary in the coal mine here for what Endo was doing on a broader scale. Yeah. And I want to make clear here, um, sort of in in this Tennessee case where they got the default judgment issued against them, um, this is so far, we're going to touch on a lot, a lot of other cases here in pretty short order. The Tennessee case is the only one where a court has actually sort of publicly like rebuked the company for doing, you know, for doing bad stuff in discovery, and it was so bad that they got a, a judgment against them. But there are many more sort of active inquiries and other situations that we'll talk about in a second. Um, but basically, this this um, sort of dispute, this dust up in Tennessee, 
kicked up a similar fight in New York, where a number of counties are suing Endo. And the attorney general's office, uh, uh, Letitia James, uh, actually said that Endo and its attorneys were, quote, knowingly and incurably corrupting this jury trial through a, quote, years-long pattern of discovery misconduct. Because what had happened is that after the company got this uh, rebuke in Tennessee, because saying like, oh, you should have been filing all this discovery and it's it's incomplete and it's been too late. They started filling dockets elsewhere in other mm-hmm. opioid cases around the court with these filings. And of course, attorneys started to notice this stuff, saying like they were trying to sneak it in, like sort of under the, you know, these reams of paper under the court's nose a little bit. Attorneys very rarely miss things like that. Yeah. And the, the thing that happened in Tennessee was so remarkable that they were kind of keyed up to look for it anyway. Um, the allegations were basically similar that Endo, like I said, was sort of violating discovery orders with incomplete or tardy submissions. Um, and that, you know, James had basically pushed for the similar type of default judgment and that, that, that they got in Tennessee and also for specific sanctions against Endo's attorneys at Arnold and Porter. And I think most people know Arnold and Porter is a very huge law firm, probably a rung or two below like the big guys, wouldn't you say? I don't like like the the cravats and the scadens of the world. Sure, but it's but like if they have over a thousand lawyers, they're right, a huge, gonna say, they're a huge corporate, they're yeah. a huge corporate law firm. Right. I mean, yeah, however you want to measure it. But um, it got pretty ugly because the uh, state's lead trial lawyer is a guy named John Oleski. And he sent the Arnold, not, not the company, he sent the Arnold and Porter lawyers an email sort of really taking the gloves off here. It's kind of a lengthy quote, but if you'll indulge. Quote, I can tell my children that I believe it when I say that the Tooth Fairy or Santa Claus are real, but my doing so doesn't transform those mythical beings into anything more genuine than the Potemkin village of faux compliance Endo is trying to conjure out of its multiple lawyers' endless reams of useless doublespeak. And it can't turn my knowing and deliberate lie to my kids into a truth any more than it can for you and your partners here. I mean, chef's kiss on that. Good yeah, wow. yeah. So Good I, heavens. Yeah, basically what is what had gone on here is that they are saying not only are they, and this is quite important, I'm, I should probably clarify this, not only are they issuing late and incomplete discovery materials, they are appearing before the court and saying that they are true. And this is like turning out to be sort of revealed to be false, whether it's intentional or not is for another time. But that's that's the issue here. The idea that like you're coming here and saying that that your discovery reports are full. And in fact, they are not. Um, we got another settlement in this case, $50 million settlement out of Endo. Um, but the sanctions motions against the attorneys still remain uh, live there. Um, and there's lots of other stuff going on. There's this is just like I've, we've talked about New York and Tennessee. Um, there's a sanctions motion pending against the company and its attorneys in California. Um, in Illinois, the uh, Endo is part of a bellwether uh, case in in the MDL. There, the judge who's overseeing that MDL has appointed a special master that is just devoted to investigating Endo discovery malfeasance. Uh, allegedly, there's a special sort of master in the, in the court that's just looking at that stuff. Um, there are judges in Arkansas and Texas that are also fielding motions on this and monitoring it very closely. So there is a sense, starting with this Tennessee case, that the dam really kind of broke open a little bit and it's starting to starting to spring leaks all around the country. I mean, what you've laid out here also just shows the sheer scope of the opioid yeah, crisis that's the other in America because there are suits in so many different jurisdictions yeah. mm-hmm. where endo is involved. I mean, it's kind of a yep. a crazy thing 
that if there's one problem that it could trickle to almost every other state. Yes. Um, but we've talked here about what the allegations against Endo are and and the Arnold Importer attorneys. But what do they say in response? I mean, have they defended themselves and their actions? So in general, they have, they, now again, these are distinct uh, you know, processes that are playing out in there and we're at different phases of them. But in general, when the company has had to answer for itself in open court, they say to the extent that there are shortcomings in our discovery, they can be chalked up to these sort of massive, kind of what you were just saying, Amber, these massive logistical difficulties of digging back into the company's records from over a decade ago across many multiple jurisdictions and, you know, retrieving these reams of documents. And they basically say it's very difficult. They've hired outside counsel to help them. You know, there are firms, of course, that specialize in e-discovery that help with this stuff. They've brought on teams uh, like that. Um, and they have maintained that any oversights in their discovery reports um, are not intentional. Um, Arnold, uh, the, the company did not respond um, when, when we asked them for a comment, but Arnold and Porter actually did issue a lengthy statement to Jeff um, before he published it, um, basically saying that the picture that we have is, is incomplete. Here was the quote. Drawing conclusions based on incomplete and one-sided information is not accurate paints a false narrative and unfairly impugns the integrity of the Arnold and Porter lawyers who have worked on these cases. The firm has not yet had a full opportunity to present all the facts relating to its role in discovery issues in these ongoing matters. Arnold and Porter looks forward to fully presenting the facts to the courts. So you can see how they, there, there are sanctions motions pending against them in most courts, and they say, you know, we haven't given our full response to this. And that's about what you would expect from a firm that's involved in something like this. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. It's We've, we've already talked about how important it is that everyone sort of play by the rules during yeah. discovery. It's sort of the bedrock of how we all know that litigation is working the way that it's supposed to. But mm -hmm. how big of a mess is this for Endo, for the firm? You know, you know how big of a problem are we talking about? Yeah. Um, it's... It's uh, it's it's really interesting because uh, again, uh, Jeff and Cara did a did a really great job laying this out, and I, they, we, I don't want to just just when we sort of talk about what might be at stake if if any of these attorneys are personally sanctioned or professionally sanctioned or whatever it might come to, um, we don't know yet. There are many things that have to play out. There are motions pending, um, but there the consequences are potentially huge, um, severe. Like it could be monetary penalties, you could be disqualified from certain high profile litigation, referrals to their own state bar associations for further discipline. Um, and uh, our story actually closed with a pretty interesting quote from uh, a guy named William Hamilton. He's a Florida law professor who specializes in uh, e-discovery. Quote, this is a big deal. What's at stake here are professional reputations and can have career wrecking effects. So these are dramatic events that are taking place, especially for Arnold and Porter. So um, obviously all eyes are on the opioid cases anyway, and this just kind of adds another interesting layer of intrigue for a, for a huge law firm. Typically, in our show, is something offbeat, and um, I don't.
don't think this qualifies. We're just ending We're off the bill. show. Off bill. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing more offbeat than sadness. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah. You have the floor. I can't believe it's been four years, four, almost five years. It'll yeah. be, we Close start five years when we, if you consider beta testing of the podcast. Yeah. We started yeah. to, I went back and looked for the first mention of podcast in my oh, nice. emails. Oh. Um, <laughs> and it was like January of 2017. Yeah. Um, but man, this is, I, I've, I, this is, this is the, the best thing I've done in my career so far. Full stop. Um, you know, we, we like, I, I was going to lead off with, with, it, it has been a, Privilege podcasting with you, <laughs> which of course is an Apollo thirteen reference. And yes, I thought I would just thought it wouldn't land, but here we are. Uh, I don't know. We took like a, a few dumb conversations about doing this and took it from that to full concept to reality, and then we made two hundred and thirty five of them. Yep. Um, and it will keep going, and I'm so proud of that. And I'm so uh, it was the highlight of my week every week. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I fully, yeah, I, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think one nice thing you said there is that it will go on. And I think you will always be credited as sort of setting up the template here for anybody that joins us in the show in the future. You know, any guests that we have, um, you really laid a foundation that other people can step into, which is such a nice thing to leave a legacy behind at a job. Yeah, I, that's that's 100% right. I mean, your Bill is I, – I, I said it to you guys before we started recording. When when word got around that Bill was leaving the company, a lot of people reached out to me and asked me if I was, like, <laughs> personally okay with it. And, of course, Bill and I are friends, uh, and we will see each other socially. Sure, I keep telling people – people have, people have texted me as well, is Alex okay? And I tell them, we live – Six blocks apart from each other. Right. Yes, uh, that's true. Um, but I just, I want to sort of reemphasize what Amber said a little bit. And to, to anyone who's listening, to the extent you ever enjoyed anything that was on the show, Bill, you were, Bill was a huge part of that. And I'm not, and I'm not just talking about, you know, when you're talking on the air, your sort of definitive sort of editorial vision for how the show should work and what makes it, what makes it good, what makes it not good. Um, it's quite, is frankly, irreplaceable. We will do our best. Uh, Amber and I are kicking around some ideas for what the show looks like uh, in the coming weeks, but it will it will not be the same. So um, it's been a hell of a ride. You're a hell of a guy. It, it has been. And I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm sad. It's bittersweet, but I mean, yes. I am happy to, I, I have a lot of faith that you guys will carry it on. I wanted to give a shout out to Steve as well who is not here in the yeah. room with us he can really pick his vacations let me tell you the 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 glue behind the show 100%. Steve Steve you know makes us sound good uh he figured out how to do a lot of this stuff um I owe him a dollar for every time every um he oh, removes yes. from from my voice I want to give a shout out to Kelly whose technical expertise and recording prowess from from the very beginning was completely invaluable we I, I literally don't think we would have done any of this if if Kelly had not been there from the beginning. Our very first recording was on iPhones sitting on top of paper towels. Yes, so correct. Uh, Kelly really shaped us up after Yes, that. well, and then subsequent recordings were Kelly's own like personal equipment. <laughs> he is uh, <laughs> he is a uh, he is a uh, he is into music and he has this equipment uh, until we got on our on our feet there. Um Alex, first off, happy birthday. Oh yeah, thank you. It's <laughs> uh, very kind. I don't know. I can't I I can't really express how much I've enjoyed getting paid to be at work talking about funny stuff with one of my friends. It's yep. it's it's been a pleasure from the beginning and 
Amber, you are a, our fearless leader. You, you kept us on track. You are frighteningly organized. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you, you listened to me politely as I complained more times than is medically advisable. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. To, uh, to the listeners, uh, it, 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 has meaned, it, has, it means the world to me that you listen to stuff that I had to say and that you listen to the show. And I hope you keep on listening. Um, the show isn't going anywhere. It's going to be awesome. Um, and I'll be around. Get in, get in touch with me. You know, I'm, I'm on Twitter. You I'll can say, find me. Do you, do you want to tell the people where you're going? No, I, I'll oh, okay. leave that. I'll leave that for for a couple weeks from now. Oh, but that's, it's that's, that's 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 so kind of you. There's good stuff coming. So uh, you know, keep in touch. I'm 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 easy to find. Uh, that's a fine way to uh, send us off. But we're not letting you off just yet. Um, Steve, as you said, is not here. He's on vacation today. But he put together uh, a hell of a clip reel uh, to send you out on. This is. Uh, Pulling back the curtain a little bit for the folks at home, wouldn't you say, Amber? Uh, it absolutely is. There's some, a few little tidbits that were on air, but a lot of behind-the-scenes cut material. <laughs> Mostly stuff that got rightly left on the cutting room floor, but we're we're gonna we're gonna dive in headfirst. To be, and, uh... to be clear, this is a surprise to me. I had no idea this was coming, so right. I'm excited. Let's uh, let's roll it. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, <laughs> hello, hello. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. <laughs> that's that's entirely too much energy for, 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 <laughs> for, what, for what I got going on right now. Welcome to Pro Say, a podcast produced by Law360 every seven days. I'm your host, Bill Donahue, and here with me... <laughs> what are you doing? I'm so denied. So what if I Googled the words, funny lawsuit? <laughs> see what happens. Sometimes I scream mid-interview. That's one of my tics. Let's, um, <laughs> let's also get on the same... <laughs> Like Levi's is hard for me. I often call them a jean maker ah, yeah. or a denim giant. Denim, <laughs> denim giant. giant. Yep. Wow. Yep, like there are principal officers at executive agencies, which are like, you know, cabinet heads, things, big, big chiefs, where they, uh... <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say big chiefs. I big meant to chief. say chief or big. The best. It's got that little shimmy that makes the women here in Cleveland go nuts. <laughs> Amazing how a different Oxford shirt can change your opinion about a guy. It's worth packing why and how it all. It's worth unpacking. <laughs> I was like, I was like, no. Shot. He makes it it's worth it. packing all the details of how. Are <laughs> <laughs> you f***ing with me? No. Okay, you you did that on purpose. <laughs> oh no! I quit. I'm sorry, Gary. I quit the podcast. Abiodun Oyawale. Yes. Abiodun Oyawale. Okay. Uh, it was an unauthorized sample taken from a 1968 recording of uh, spoken word artist Abiodun Oyawale. <laughs> I was like, there's no chance he nails it. I wish I could have played some bet on it. I've got it. I've got it. Okay. He's got it. <laughs> we'll be the judge of that. Um, shit, I don't have it. <laughs> wow. I'm just going to start us off with the headline. Union Pacific must rehire worker who pooped on train connector. How did the judge sort of view, you know, when, when we're having this dispute between Are you asking with if, the the judge, yeah. if the judge poo-pooed the yeah. arbitrator's decision? Yeah, yeah. It's 100% the question. Um, 
thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> they went beyond even, uh, the, the, the judge went beyond even disqualifying. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't hold it. No, it's okay. It. You were looking really pensive over there. And I was like, what's um, She's also married to uh, William, H. William H. Macy, who was not charged in the case, although he yeah. presumably took part uh, to a certain extent. Uh, I shouldn't say that. Yeah, I was like, I, I was going to say, crime. Yeah, we don't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sansa. <laughs> Chaos isn't a pit. Sansa, do you have any salsa to go with my salsa? Chaos is a ladder. I prefer all Taco Bell references. <laughs> I want to get some Taco Bell. It looks like a terrific product. Does it? Like, similar sure. to a Crunchwrap Supreme. I'm yeah. <laughs> Lina, what was what was that ancient Roman historian? Lina. <laughs> I think it was Satonius, babe. Co-owner of the landscaping company is a guy named Kevin Gruber. He took the stand uh, and... Wait, wait, wait. Sorry, what? You're going to... Well, I saw you. Yeah, what? The guy has the same last name as the bad guy from Die Hard, <laughs> yeah, and, you're not, and you're not going to remark on it or even pause to let me remark on it? There you go. You've, you you remarked. Guys, I thought it was good <laughs> organic patter. Although I will, I will phrase my, I will phrase my entry in a not, not in the form of a question. Yeah, yeah maybe, throw maybe off, not a question. Throw off Albot over there. Can I re-record "See you again next week"? I said it in like a real Tom Waits voice, accidentally. <laughs> like, see you again next week. Say I will remember you. <laughs> Can we in every show like that? Like, Great, um, like all the shows. Just that's our new out. I should have listened. To the yeah, you should have listened. Yeah. I think you, you you said you said it basically like. Uh, what part we said the wrong date that Michael Jackson died. Yeah, Michael Jackson remember? died in. Let's just. Yeah. You basically said live, Michael Jackson so died in 2010. I think it. you said it that way. I'm almost certain of it. Can you? You don't have the file on that computer though. Uh, I, I mean, it could be hard to find. Oh, shit, I have no idea. I'll just record a couple. It was at the beginning. I'll of record a couple, do a couple of, versions. Yeah. 2009. 2009. It's amazing. This is amazing. Okay. Okay. 2009. 2009. 2009. <laughs> All right. Well, now you're. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man. Well, I well look. I said I wasn't gonna weep. But I'm not weeping. I'm, I'm, I laughed till I cried. Yes. Uh, well, you can you can say that. I'm 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 here in the room, folks, and I think it might be a little bit of both. I'm not sure. I really like the idea that the last thing you would say on this podcast would just be 2009. <laughs> I, I mean, I can give it a go. 2009. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Uh, see you next week, guys. <laughs> As always, we have a lot of people to thank for Pro Se. Our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Our contributing reporters this week, Cara Salvatore, Jeff Overly, and Dorothy Adkins. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review. Tell Bill Donahue how much you loved him on the show. 
And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. See you back here next week.